Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, your faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a great show for you today. We're talking to James Hussey, the director and producer of Wham Blam, the new documentary about Roy Lichtenstein and the art of appropriation. So be sure to stay tuned for this fantastic conversation. I love talking to James. Before we get into this, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please like and share this episode, make some comments. And of course, go check out our website, notrealart.com and learn about all the great, good, healthy stuff we got for you there for artists and art lovers alike. We're always promoting and amplifying amazing artists and their work. We also this year rolled out a new monthly online art exhibition series called First Friday. So please be sure to check that out. Also in June, we're going to be opening an application process for our 2024 artist grant. So please be on the lookout for that. So enough of the plugs here, enough of the company business, as it were. We want to get into this episode and hear from James Hussey, who has worked as a political communications and marketing consultant in D.C. for, I don't know, last four decades His clients included Presidents Clinton, Obama, and Biden. He previously served as an executive producer for the documentary John G. Avilson, King of the Underdogs, which was named Best Documentary at the 2017 Beverly Hills Film Festival. John was the director of movies like Rocky and The Karate Kid, certainly movies you've heard, but you probably didn't hear of John. So they ended up doing a documentary about him, which is great. James is also a graduate of the journalism school at the University of Mississippi, but has embraced his own inner artist as a documentary filmmaker and has just released Wham Blam, Roy Lichtenstein and the Art of Appropriation. Fascinating story here because while Roy achieved great fame and fortune, turns out he was appropriating his art directly from panels and comic books without giving credit to the artists that he was replicating. And so at what point does appropriation become plagiarism? And what does this mean for the legacy of Roy Lichtenstein and these comic book artists, many of whom toiled in obscurity in below poverty line conditions? 
This is just a fascinating conversation. I love talking to James, such a smart guy, so kind, so sweet, so generous with his time to talk about his project, which I really recommend you guys watching. Wham Blam, you can stream it on Amazon like I did. There are other locations, just Google it. And so you've got to check this out. It's really well done. So I'm grateful to have James here with us. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only James Hussey. James Hussey, welcome to Not Real Art. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to speak with you today. Well, we're excited to have you. You know, we've had a few documentarian filmmakers, not many, one or two. And now we have our next filmmaker, documentary filmmaker here with us today. James, thank you so much. How did you get interested in producing documentary movies? I was in another field. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm involved in politics. And for the past 37 years, I've been involved in fundraising for the Democratic Party, for Democratic presidential candidates, but also the nonprofit field. I worked for Ralph Nader for quite a while. So maybe seven or eight years ago, I was really feeling a need to do something for myself. A lot of my career was involved around being a ghostwriter for a lot of these famous people that I've worked for. And I've really enjoyed that, but I wanted to do something that had my name on it, something that was mine. And filmmaking was something I was always interested in. And a friend of mine knew of a young director down in Texas who wanted to make a film about the director, John G. Abelson, who is not very well known, but won the Oscar for Rocky. Also, he directed a lot of their major films, including The Karate Kid. I mean, those two alone are two of the top grossing films of the 70s and 80s. But very few people know who John G. Abelson is. So this director, Derek Wayne Johnson, he really needed money people, people to help him on the business end to get this made. And so I signed on as the executive producer, one of several. And it was just uh, education to how to make a film. And I realized from an equipment viewpoint, it's not very expensive anymore. The cameras are very affordable. So much, you don't have to buy film. It's all done digitally. And so I realized you could make a film relatively affordably. And that was a great experience. And the film was a critical success. We got to work with people like Martin Scorsese, Sly Stallone, a lot of other major players in Hollywood. So it was a fun experience. We were proud of the film. And I decided I wanted to make one of my own. I wanted to direct a film. And that's how I set out doing this back in early 2015. Well, the project you're referencing, of course, is Wham Blam, your newest documentary about the incredible, talented Roy Lichtenstein. And of course, you know, he's famous for his iconic paintings of, shall we say, cartoon characters, <laughs> you know, and so there's some controversy around, you know, his work, given some of the appropriation issues that come up. But I mean, come on, there's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, this is as old as time, right? Appropriation? Well, right. I mean, I think I uh, remember a story about Picasso when he found about the cave paintings in France that go back tens of thousands of years. And then when he saw it, he said something along the lines of that fact that I've created nothing new because there were a lot of resemblances between some of his work and those cave paintings. So, yes, definitely. I mean, 
And I think a, a lot of people who have seen the film think that I'm anti-appropriation. I'm actually not anti-appropriation. I think appropriation plays an essential part in the art process. All artists, to some form, do appropriation. I'm an amateur artist myself, and I do portraits of blues artists. I'm originally from Mississippi. In fact, several hanging behind me, and that's some of my work. That includes appropriation. I have to look at photographs of these blues artists, and I'm using the lyrics from their work. But the key thing is I'm attributing my work to the previous work of the photographers, of the lyricists who wrote the lyrics and things like that. It's very obvious what I'm doing. And the big controversy with Lichtenstein is that I believe to most people who see his work in a museum or in a book or somewhere else, they don't necessarily realize this is coming directly from the panel out of a comic book because that context is not provided, rarely provided, by the biographers or and certainly not by the museums. When you go to a museum, there's the panel next to the painting saying this is a work by Roy Lichtenstein. There's no reference to the original source material. It doesn't say Roy Lichtenstein after Russ Heath, as most other fine artists are accorded that privilege. So I think that's the big difference between what Roy Lichtenstein's doing and also other modern artists, uh, such as Richard Prince. And Jeff Koons is a little bit more obvious, his sources. But I think the big controversy is that the original artists are not having their work recognized. Wasn't Roy kind of a product of his time? I mean, you know, was attribution even a thing then? Was there a culture of attribution that he sort of bucked and, and made a conscious choice then not to give credit? Or was he just a product of his time, do you think? And attribution was an afterthought? Probably a little bit of both. We have to recognize that the pop art movement was a new thing. Standard practices and rules, if they existed, were being developed on the go. But I think one of the big differences between, say, Roy Lichtenstein and his most famous contemporary, Andy Warhol, is that most of the time, Andy Warhol was choosing subjects to appropriate that everyone already recognized from other sources. I mean, obviously, the Campbell Soup Can is the most famous example. When people see that, whether it's in an art gallery or somewhere else, they know what he's doing. He's taking something from everyday life that they see in their pantry, that they see in the grocery store shelf, and he's making it something else. He's making it a piece of art. But most of the people, I believe, that see a Roy Lichtenstein piece do not recognize that he has done the same thing, that he's taking something that has existed somewhere else and putting it into a painting. I think most people believe he has appropriated the comic book style, but not necessarily appropriated the comic art itself. And also, I think the other big difference is the Campbell soup can. No one has viewed that as art before, but these comic artists view their work as art. They view it as their creation, and they view it as a form of theft of their work without the attribution, giving them credit for that. Yeah. Do you think that there was a bit of privilege that played into this sort of what I mean is like Roy operated in the sort of rarefied art world of white cube galleries at a very high end. 
Whereas comic book artists were these kind of lowbrow underground, you know, not real artists, <laughs> excuse the plug. And so there was a, a bit of privilege there, a bit of an elitist attitude of like, well, you know, I can get away with this. I'm just going to do this and no one's going to care. I don't know if it was an attitude of, oh, I'm going to get away with this. I'm stealing something because he did at the time say that he was appropriating from comic books. So I don't think he felt like, oh, I'm getting away with something. However, the fact that he never revealed the exact sources, I think there's some suspicion there. My belief is that he did not want to reveal the exact source because he probably didn't want people to realize just how closely some of these items were. One of the things that we prove in the documentary is that when he talked about his process, he said he would do his own original drawing of a comic and then project that onto a canvas and do it. And initially, that's what he did. But one of the things that I think we illustrate in this documentary is at some point, he's decided to start taking shortcuts. And he stopped making those original drawings. And he started putting the comic books directly on the projector and then tracing them. So I think that he probably did not hope for people to find those original sources to see how exact they were. The few examples that were found at the time were more of a happenstance. Those are the ones that biographers generally refer to. They were some of the early ones. But one of the people we profile within this documentary is David Barslow, who's a retired art teacher outside of Springfield, Massachusetts. And he has spent almost 40 years locating the original sources for Lichtenstein's work. And it's really his work that has kind of regenerated this argument about whether he too closely appropriated the work and whether he should have given credit to the original artist. And he's located, he claims, that he's located probably about 95% of the original source materials. And a lot of those reveal just how close the two correspond. Yeah, I love that part of the movie because, I mean, clearly this is a man on a mission obsessed, (laughs) right, to acquire up to 100% he's aiming for, right? But what a labor of love and and an obsession that really isn't welcomed by, you know, the estate or the blue chip art world, right? I mean, he's sort of been criticized or, or ignored, hasn't he? Well, exactly. And it's really unfortunate because some people, we have one biographer of Warhol, who appears on the uh, documentary, and he gives him credit. He says that David Barcelo has done an invaluable service and that it's a real, I think he called it a goldmine of information about Liechtenstein. However, the Liechtenstein estate, the Liechtenstein Foundation, and a lot of the approved biographers of Liechtenstein have not been very kind to him. And we show an example where the Liechtenstein estate actually sent a sort of cease and desist letter telling him he did not have the right to reproduce Liechtenstein's paintings and do the comparisons (laughs) with the original sources. It's amazing. Right. And it's a part of the documentary that generates very loud laughter from the audience because within this letter, not only do they defend what they say is their copyright and right to suppress the use of these images, but they also defend the right of the comic book companies for their images not to be reproduced, which generate very loud laughters because that's exactly 
what Liechtenstein himself did. So they're actually arguing against Roy Liechtenstein's ability to be able to use that imagery. This is the art world, people. <laughs> this right. is the, the bizarro, dysfunctional, crazy art world that we love for right. better and worse. And then, of course, I mean, I want everybody to see the movie. You've got to get out there, guys, and stream it and watch it online. I watch it on Amazon, wham, blam. But, but you know, another through line or another secondary story here within your doc is, of course, how many of these artists that Roy appropriated from, I think one in particular, you know, is really living in impoverished conditions, right? So, you know, the old notion about starving artists, what have you, there's a real contrast here, right? Because Roy's fame and fortune is very real. Whereas some of these artists that you taught that he appropriated from might have a little bit of fame in in the very nerdiest corners of a comic book culture, but they certainly don't have much fortune and are living pretty conservatively. Right. And earlier I said that I started this documentary in 2015. It took me eight years to film it and edit it. In reality, this started 50 years ago. And I'll tell you why. 50 years ago, I was eight years old. I was living in Aberdeen, Mississippi, and, and my family ran a small grocery store. And when I was eight, I came in and did my first day of work at the store. We did not observe the child labor laws in my family, apparently. <laughs> Which I are coming back, by the way. Uh, I mean, child labor is coming right. back, apparently. <laughs> well, in, in this case, it, it, it was an enjoyable task. I enjoyed working in my family store. But I, that day, I stacked some eggs in the refrigerated section, and I was paid a quarter. And I remember asking my dad, what can I buy for a quarter? And he suggested I go across the street to the pharmacy, Center's Pharmacy, where they sold comic books. And so I went over there, and this is the actual comic that I bought. I still oh, have it today. Right on. And it's a Sergeant Rock comic. <laughs> 20 cents. I fell in love with this. And this comic actually has played, I've been reflecting on this just over the past year or two, but this comic has really changed my life because it developed my love of reading. I was a huge history buff, so it really fed into that. And I also fell in love with art. And this comic was drawn by an artist named Russ Heath, who is considered one of the great Golden Age comics. And he was known for having very detailed work. And so I fell in love with Russ Heath's work. And I quit collecting comics probably in eighth or ninth grade, but I always held on to them. I always remembered them. And I didn't hear Russ Heath's name for 30-something years until I saw an article on gizmodoio9.com that said comic artist Russ Heath talks about how he believes Roy Lichtenstein ripped him off. And that really caught me by surprise. For one, that I'd not heard Russ Heap's name in so long. And two, that there was some connection with Roy Lichtenstein. And meanwhile, I'd become a fan of Roy Lichtenstein's work over the previous decades. I'd been to several retrospectives, and I really admired his work, probably because of my love for comic books. So when I read the article, I was very surprised. And it was Russ Heaps talking about how he's living on Social Security, that he's barely making it and that he's having to live on charity for his groceries while there are copies of his work hanging in museums around the world and being auctioned off for 
at that time, tens of millions of dollars and now hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was just so intrigued by this. And I just realized reading this article that I had a topic to do my first documentary. And that's what set me out on this journey. And, you know, I spent time, I reached out to Mr. Heath. And at that time, he was almost 90, living in Van Nuys, California. And he agreed for me to interview him. And I, over the next two or three years, I went out and visited him several times. And he was a great guy, very joyful person, lots of great stories. He worked for Playboy for a while, and he lived in the mansion for a year and a half. And next door was Shel Silverstein, and he just regaled you of all sorts of stories. He was just a great person. But he was also living destitute. He was in not a very nice apartment. He slept on a mattress without sheets, and he was reliant on a charity called the Hero Initiative, which supports retired comic artists to pay for his groceries and to drive him around for his doctor's appointments. And so whenever I I spent time with him, I always brought a bag of groceries. I would take him out to dinner. I remember I took him to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse for dinner. And, you know, he thought that was the most magnificent place he had ever been to. And I I was very glad to be able to bring a little bit of joy to him because he had brought so much joy to me. But it was really, really very sad. And one of the big surprises about the film, when I set out to make it, I viewed it as a very straightforward, intellectual, technical type film about appropriation. You know, when is it okay? When is it not okay? And what surprised me and surprises audiences is this actually turns into very much a human interest story. And I think that catches, it caught me by surprise. And it catches audiences by surprise because I think people really commiserate with uh, Russ Heath, especially uh, about the hardships that he went through in the final years of his life. And that's contrasted with copies of his work hanging in the University Art Gallery, hanging in the Tate Modern that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And his name's not even mentioned in connection with these paintings. It's nowhere to be seen on the info cards or any of that. I think a lot of people are outraged about that. Indeed, rightfully so. He was 90 when you interviewed him. Has he passed since? Yes, he passed in 2018. Okay. I ask in part because Van Nuys is just down the street here from my studio here in L.A., So so many creative geniuses in my backyard that we don't know about. I think Leonardo DiCaprio did a documentary about Russian artists who was just this brilliant guy. I'm forgetting his name now, unfortunately, but it's a documentary on Netflix. But I think he also lived in Van Nuys, just sort of in obscurity. But, you know, Mr. Heath, what do you think is going to happen to his notebooks and his sketchbooks and his body of work? I mean, were they able to get donated to a museum of some kind or to the L.A. library or Do you know what happened with his archives? I really have no idea. I know he had children, so I don't know. I don't know. And he did not have a lot left because any original art he had, he was trying to sell just to make money. And also, this goes back to back in the day, back in the 50s and 60s when he was so prolific. And I suppose the 70s, the comic artists did not own their original work. And a lot of those pages that they drew for DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and all were just thrown away. And today, the existing ones, like a Russ Heath spread, can go for anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000 a page. 
So if he'd been allowed to keep those things, he would have had more of a source of income. And today, comic artists, they have more rights. So they own that original art. They're able to sell it and make additional money. Yeah, it's it's evolved a lot. The idea of IP ownership and copyright and the artists have a bit more power and ownership than they did, although some would argue there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of compensating artists rightfully. I mean, because, you know, and it is fascinating to think about the level of technical skill and artistry, the level of, shall I say, mathematics <laughs> in the design of a, of a comic spread, a panel, uh, whatever. And to think that at one point, perhaps not now, but at one point, these artists were looked down upon as not real artists. And isn't that a fascinating thing, right? Because it sort of feels like, well, oh, the more commercial it is, the less legitimate it is. Why do you think that is? Something that really came out in the film It did not really resonate with me during the filming, but once we started editing, it really started popping out. And I think the audience witnesses this as well. But one of the things that's obvious is that in the art world, I believe a lot of these individuals are only concerned about what other people in the art world think and say. When they're speaking, it's pretty much just within their limited community. And it's almost like an exclusive group that there's a little concern about what outsiders might think of the conversation. So they very casually refer to the original comic art as low art, while the almost exact copy of it blown up, hanging in the tape modern, is high art. So they believe that Roy Lichtenstein and other appropriate artists have elevated this art. There's a lot of this very lofty, you could say elitist, discussion that they take something that's not art and make it art. This is the type of conversation they have. And it's really, I think, belittling to those original artists just because of where their work was published or in what type of format, I don't think makes it any less high or or any of that than what's hanging in the galleries. And I think that's one of the things that really, really upsets those comic artists. One of the last living comic artists appropriated by Lichtenstein who did not participate was John Ramita Sr., who's very well known within the comic book world. And I think he was too ill to participate. And also he, he, he was very emotional about it. I spoke to him two or three times on the phone and he just said he couldn't participate. But he told me a story about there was an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, I think in 1991, called The High and the Low. And the exhibit focused on appropriative art, exhibiting the original art with the high art version, if you want to use that term. And he was invited to it, but he was infuriated, he told me, because it was literally to illustrate the high and the low. He said his work was exhibited in the basement while copies of his work hung in the galleries upstairs. And he said he stormed out because he was infuriated by it. I think that's a very good example of the way a lot of these comic artists feel, that their work is being denigrated while it's being almost exactly copied and then held up in high esteem by this other artist who gives them no attribution as being the original artist. Well, and then there are a lot of artists, Robert Williams being one of them, you know, who who came out of comic books, Zap Comics in particular, for Robert. And, you know, and he tried to bring 
a level of subversive uh, imagery and iconography and uh, concepts and themes, you know, to the canvas, to the fine art world. And it was rejected on canvas as well and beautifully painted, you know, world-class technical ability, but the, because of the subject matter and because of the connection to the comic book world, that's not the word I want, but anyway, because of the pedigree, right? Because of the pedigree, I was like, oh, okay, no, 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 this isn't fine art. This is just like, you know, something else that's not as sophisticated. And, you know, it was sort of like, that's how the so-called lowbrow, I think Robert Williams sort of branded it lowbrow because uh, the highbrow world was rejecting it. And of course, now it seems like lowbrow art, generally speaking, and certainly comic books, if, you know, not to lump them in. I mean, shoot, Comic-Con, <laughs> it's the, the, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot to be said about Hollywood ruining Comic-Con. <laughs> I get that. But uh, I don't know. This resistance in the fine art world, you know, or this very conservative, isn't it interesting, right? How conservative the art world really is in terms of saying, okay, well, if you don't have an MFA from Yale, you're not legitimate. Right. And one of the participants in the film is Dave Gibbons, who is probably one of the most successful comic artists in history. He created Watchmen, which obviously was, I think, time or life had named it one of the top hundred novels of all time. And it's certainly one of the most respected graphic novels. He also created The King's Man. And so, you know, he has two movie franchises under his name. And he's taking it on to be an advocate for the people who inspired him, these older artists and things like that. And he actually addresses this about how often those original comic artists, their work is viewed as low art or, you know, is not worth recognition. And he actually takes pride in the fact that he believes that comic art has become the preeminent form of art today. Like, I'm not into the Marvel movies, no disrespect to those who are, but you can't go to the movie theater without a Marvel <laughs> movie these days. You see comic book-related art in all forms of advertisement, and he, his argument is, if you want to view things as low and high, he believes uh, comic art has become the preeminent art form and will continue to be so for quite some time. So it's, it's, it's interesting how they view that. And how that's given birth to graphic novels, for example, yep. and art toys. Like, I don't know how familiar you are with events like DesignerCon, but DesignerCon is produced by a friend of mine, created by a friend of mine, and we've been involved with it over the years. And this is the world's largest convention for art toys, designer toys, pop culture artworks, and so many talented, amazing artists taking the icons of their youth, for example, whether it's a Mickey Mouse or Batman or whatever, and turning them into various toys, various, you know, interpreting them artistically, you know, into different forms of mediums. And, you know, on a certain level, you know, I guess if I'm Marvel or if I'm Disney or Warner Brothers, I turn my cheek because those are actually your diehard fans, right? I mean, they, they love your characters enough to draw them and and make them and produce them you know those are probably super fans that you don't want to sue in court but yes it's exploded and you know i don't know what was the proverbial domino that kind of started that whether it was comic-con or the advent of the batman movies you know i i don't know but uh, certainly i agree the, this idea of so-called lowbrow art is hotter than ever right right and i think gibbons and others have a valid argument there 
Indeed, indeed. Well, so how many comic books in your collection, James? I think probably in the five or six years that I collected them, may, you know, maybe one to 200, something <laughs> like that. Nothing compared. It's two boxes. I yeah. Okay. You. Yeah. <laughs> Manageable. If you go to David Barslow, the person I referenced earlier, who's tracked down all this original source material, bought a second home to collect his um, <laughs> collection, which apparently numbers in the hundreds of thousands. So my collection pales in comparison to many, if not most. Do you consider yourself a collector? Of comics? Of comics, of art. Some people collect knives, they collect guns. I mean, are you a collector? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I love art. If you could see my house here, it's filled with art, a wide range of things, a very eclectic group of things, everything from, I have a Chagall print, I have a Calder on the wall next to me, but I also have a lot of my own creative work. I have art from artist friends of mine. I really enjoy art. So I think you can say I'm an art collector. Yeah. But no, I don't think you can say I'm a comic book collector since I stopped in 1978 or 1979. At what point does collecting become hoarding is really? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I actually think collectors are organized hoarders. Yes. That's the way yes. I do it. And so I'm a I'm an organized hoarder. I think the difference is a collector knows what they have. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And you can see it. <laughs> you can it's see not it. In stacks That's right. And hidden in the corner, that type of thing. That's right. Well, so Wham Blam took you eight years to make. Was that a function of, because eight years is, you know, it's a long time. I mean, obviously a labor yeah. of love, you stuck with it. I mean, what were some of the challenges? Was Why did it take eight years? Was it financing related? Was it just trying to track people down? Was it the fact that you were running your own company and trying to squeeze this in on the weekends? It's a couple of factors. I actually self-financed this because it's, you know, relatively affordable to make a film when you set your mind to it. The camera I used was, a, I bought for $800 used on eBay. It was a Blackmagic pocket cinema camera, which is one of the world's smallest cinema camera and produces a good enough image to project on a big screen. So it was two part. One is that no one gets wealthy making documentaries. So virtually every documentary filmmaker has to work a second job. And, you know, so I was still involved in my firm. I had a successful career. I developed a firm working in those things. So during the time I was filming this, uh, if you may remember, there were two major presidential elections that attracted a lot of my attention as well as my work with other clients. It also took time just to track down a lot of these people. A lot of the Liechtenstein biographers did not want to participate in the project. So, you know, it was difficult finding some of the people who were brave enough to participate. And I think they're to be applauded because they saw the value of this. That was the other part. But I would say the chief roadblock was having to work my regular job. Right, right. Arguably that eight years would have been four years or less <laughs> if you weren't yes, only yes. got a full-time gig. Right. And like I'm saying, out to make another documentary, and my hope is to do it within a year to a year and a half, because I sold my company last year, so I have more free time than I've had in the past. So I'm hoping to be able to see if I can make my next documentary on a much shorter timeline. Well, a couple of things. One is congratulations on selling your company. That's a huge accomplishment unto itself. Well, thank you. 
And that's very exciting to hear about the second documentary you're working on. What can you tell us about it? I'm still considering a couple of subjects. I'm down to two or three. Let's go through them right now. Let's decide. Let's just pick it right now. (laughs) I'll tell you about the one that I'm really considering. When I first came to Washington at 21 years old out of college, I lived in a boarding house. We still had boarding house in those days on Capitol Hill and was chiefly populated by other interns. But amongst all those interns was this gentleman in his upper 50s who had an English accent and wore very tailored three-piece suits. And he was just a charming guy. And he was a scholar and a painter. And he had written books on uh, several major artists. And he was working on a new book in the Library of Congress. And he became a good friend of mine. A lot of what I know about art, he would take me down to the Smithsonian Mall and take me to the National Gallery and other galleries and teach me about artists and things like that. He was just a great guy until the day the FBI showed up knocking on the door and arrested him. <laughs> so it ends up that he... He was a spy. Uh, was not who, <laughs> well, no, he was not who he said he was. He had created this identity. He was actually a scholar. He had written these books. He was actually a very good artist. In fact, I have a portrait he did of me hanging just on the wall over there. So it ends up he had totally created his identity that he wasn't even from England or Ireland. He was from Brooklyn. And it was a fascinating story. It dragged out over years. And so I think I've decided to revisit that and try to figure out who this gentleman was. Like, how did he end up He was a brilliant person. He obviously had this extremely high IQ and had written these books and and had done portraits. He did an official portrait of Jackie Kennedy, for example. I mean, he was a renowned artist, but had ended up becoming a con man at some point in his life. And so I'm thinking about doing a documentary about who was this gentleman? How did he end up in the straits that he was in at the end of his life? I want to see that. You've got my vote. I think you've chosen okay. the right one. <laughs> you're, you're my one person focus group. Focus group of one. Yes. Yes. No, that sounds fascinating. But you know, that sort of reminded me, I remember talking to a documentary filmmaker a while back who did a documentary. Uh, actually, he's done uh, two documentaries that I'm aware of. He did one on the creator, the in- inventor of the Moog synthesizer Dr. Moog, I guess, forgetting his first name. And then Hans Fielestad was a filmmaker. And Hans also did a documentary called Sunset Boulevard about the history of Sunset Boulevard. And so Hans was, we were talking one day about his filmmaking and he was sort of sharing that he, you know, when he goes into a project, he might have a vision for the kind of the story he wants to tell. But as he goes down the path and does interviews and filming and he gets more information, He's not married to his original idea. He lets the story unfold. And if he needs to change path or course, you know, he's happy to do that if he realizes, oh, no, the story isn't that, it's this. And so talk a little bit about that in your own experience. I mean, when you went into making Wham Blam, you know, eight years ago, what story did you think you were going to tell? And then how did that change to the story that you ended up telling? That's a great question because the process worked exactly the same for me as the example you provided. When I started this, I really had no idea what form it would take. All I wanted to do was to figure out whether Russ Heath had a legitimate complaint. And so at first, I just started filming people. Anybody who would talk to me I thought was relevant to the story, I would film. 
And, you know, at times I thought this would be a biography of Russ Heath telling his story. And then I started realizing just as I did more and more interviews, it was a much bigger story. It was this question of about appropriation and about whether what Lichtenstein did was right or wrong. And also, you know, like so many things, it's not always black and white. There's a lot of gray. And so I just realized that it was uh, very important to expand upon this. And I also started realizing that Roy Lichtenstein, whether you love or hate him, and let me say, I started out as a fan. I'm still a fan of Roy Lichtenstein, although I do have questions about whether everything he did was right. And, and I certainly believe the original artists deserve credit and need more recognition. But I started realizing that there's this huge gap in Roy Lichtenstein's biography. You cannot understand Roy Lichtenstein without understanding these original artists. When the biographers reflect on his influences, they just focus on his teachers at Ohio State, the other artists he dealt with when he was at Rutgers and other artists of the time, especially the abstract expressionists. And they did influence his way of thinking, the way he viewed art, but they were not stylistically his influences. The stylistic influences were the comic artists. And there's almost nothing about this in his biography. And I started realizing that his paintings are going to be hanging in these museums 100, 200 years from now. And people will still be studying him. And that these original influences are dying off. When I started this, you know, we I found out through David Barslow that there were 32, 33 comic artists who had been appropriated Lichtenstein. And when I started this, as far as I could tell, only four were still alive. And I was only able to get two of those on the film. And this was a last opportunity to be able to document these actual influences on Lichtenstein. And so I realized that any of this footage that I have is not only relevant to an audience today, it will be to scholars 100 years from now, 200 years from now. So all of a sudden, what was just this kind of passion project I started realizing had potential historic implications and that this was a major gap in his biography that needed to be filled. And thank goodness you did it because there you are. It is historic because you're correcting the record, filling in the gaps, uh, setting us straight in terms of source code. And, you know, it's fascinating, right? I mean, a chef, well, maybe a chef doesn't always reveal the recipes, but, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, right, to the extent that chefs talk about their recipes and their ingredients, I mean, it, you know, artists, you know, I guess are, are loath to, you know, talk about their source ingredients, but yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I remember when I first saw Roy's work, of course, I didn't know, I mean, I was much younger, but I didn't know that, you know, he was appropriating specific panels, but it was very clear to me that of course he was inspired by the comic book artists and I'm sorry, call me naive, but I discount that work immediately in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, as, as art, right. So like, you know, it's yes, nothing new under the sign. Yes. Artists get their inspiration for anywhere, but I, I sort of do this calculus when I look at art and I think, wait, have I seen that before? Yes or no? Yes. Oh, well, where did I see it? Oh, okay. If it feels fresh and new and novel, 
for me, there's a premium on that versus if I see something and I feel like, oh, wait, yeah, that's clearly inspired by them or that or this over here. And so I'm going to discount that a little bit. Now, you know, to be fair to Roy, no one was doing that at the time. You know, that was part of the novelty of what he was doing, right? It was like, oh, this is fresh. This is new but only within a certain context, right? Because, you know, within the white cube gallery, right? He brought it into that space, which elevated it from low to high, apparently. Right, right, exactly. And I think it's really easy because when you see this art, you're not really thinking about the individuals who created it. You don't see the personalities. And also, I think it's very hard for people to understand intellectual property issues about, I mean, just the common Joe or Jane on the street you know, they look at painting and it's like, well, you know, what is that worth? And is the concept worth anything? I I think those are very esoteric issues that the common person don't think about or is hard to understand. But, you know, a lot of effort have gone into these paintings. One of the things we cover about Russ Heath is one of the reasons he was in poverty was because he took such pride in his work that he would spend two to three weeks on a project that he only got a week's pay for. And if he had not put all that effort into the work, he might have made more money but produced not such a great product. Well, Lichtenstein benefited from that extra effort that Russ Heath put into work. If you find his images like Wham! at the Tate Modern, it's very dynamic. And that's because Russ Heath put a lot of work into his artistry. And Lichtenstein's benefiting from that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you can point to any number of examples and it's everywhere. I mean, it's funny. I'm thinking right now about Catalan, Maurizio Catalan, right? Who taped the banana <laughs> to, to the oh, wall, yeah, that's right? Right. I mean, is someone that- Someone ate it, right? Yeah, yeah. Then someone ate it, right? Exactly. But it's like, <laughs> it, talk about the height of appropriation. I'm just going to buy a banana from the bodega around the corner, and I'm going to tape it on the wall with duct tape, and uh, that's my piece of art. And then you can argue that the person that ate it appropriated it. Exactly, right? I mean, it's just, these are the conversations that I, this is why we love the art world, right? This is why we love art, because it challenges us, it provokes us, it makes us feel things, it makes us happy, it makes us angry. What lucky people we are to be able to to have these conversations and celebrate, you know, our passion for art. But James, you also make art. You're a painter. I'm seeing some of the things behind you there on the wall. Your Mississippi Blues series there, it looks like. Tell me about your art in in your practice. I love music. I love blues music. I love the history of the blues since a lot of that happened around where I grew up. My hometown is in the area where quite a few prominent artists came up. And I first got fascinated in this when I was visiting Chicago in my 20s. And this person asked me where I was from and said, Mississippi. He said, where in Mississippi? Which is usually a useless argument because I'm (laughs) from a small town no one's been to. And I said, Aberdeen, Mississippi. And his response was, Buka White. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, Buka White is a great blues artist. And his biggest hit was Aberdeen, Mississippi blues. And I could not understand why I was in my 20s. I had never heard this. And, you know, I was aware of other artists, B.B. King and Muddy Waters, all that. But I started researching Booker White and he was right. Booker White was from my hometown and produced a lot of great hits. In the 60s, he's toured with Janis Joplin and Hendrix and a lot of 
people like that. I thought it was a shame that I don't know about this artist. So I decided to start expressing that by creating kind of about the outsider art, you know, basically non-trained, you know, a lot of homemade materials and things like that, which is also a Southern tradition. So I started creating these pieces of art from found items and the frames are very elaborate. And I, I really have a good time doing it. I don't sell them or anything. They're really just for my own pleasure, but I've had some exhibits of them and they're they're more like history exhibits more so than art exhibits because I, I produce a very complete history of the artists. And I call it the patron saints of modern music because I also put within the piece about whether this artist influenced this artist, for example, Robert Johnson, who's behind me, obviously influenced Clapton and a lot of other artists. And it's just something I do on the side and really enjoy it. From what I can tell on the video there, that piece of the Robert Johnson piece right behind you, it looks like you've painted on the frame as well. The painting is maybe, I don't know, six by six or something. So you're painting on the frame, you're fabricating the frame as well to fit the piece. Like that frame's wonderful. Well, thank you. And that's a frame I bought for $20 at a home goods store. You know, it had like a butterfly in the middle. Or yeah, something. right, right, right. I started realizing that these really elaborate frames you can buy for nothing because most people do the painting and then have it framed. And the frame is extremely expensive. I just realized I could take these fairly expensive, elaborate frames and make them a piece of art. So I actually spend more time on the frames than I do. And I put a lot of symbolism in there. The bottle there represents, he was very much alcoholic, but he is also poisoned to death. So the bottles also have the poison symbol on them and things like that. So I, I try to work in as much symbolism into it and make it into an educational piece also. Well, and the, the other piece, the piece with the writing on it. Yeah. What does that say? What What is the quote there? Well, you know, the story about Robert Johnson at the crossroads, you know, memorialized. What was the Coen Brothers film? Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? They have a Robert Johnson character that they meet at the crossroads. And so, and Robert Johnson liked to stimulate that rumor that he had sold his soul. So these are the lyrics from his song, The Devil Blues, you know, which says, early this morning, you knocked upon my door and I said, hello, Satan, I believe it's time to go and bury my body by the highway side so my old evil spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. And so I just always love that. And sometimes in my piece, I memorialize the lyrics. Right, right. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm loving your stuff. I'm a Midwestern boy, grew up outside Chicago, actually born in Gary, was born in the same hospital Michael Jackson was born in, but sneaking into blues bars in Chicago. <laughs> One of my bragging points was I, I went to Buddy Guy's place and he was there and I got to have a, a shot with him. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, yes. it's one of the highlights. Absolutely, my, uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's he's such a gift. A friend of mine used to play there. His blues band used to play there at Buddy's original Legends Bar. And uh, we, there were a few nights like that where we got to, you know, have some drinks with Buddy. And what a gift, you know, those experiences are. And being able to engage with the artists that we admire and respect who are still with us. You know, it's wonderful. But yet, you know, many are, are leaving us, too. It's such a serendipitous gift, a miracle that you were able to make this project while some of these artists are still living. I mean, you you, you really just caught the, the tail in there. Yeah, I, I find it a great privilege because, as I said, Russ Heath was my 
artistic hero as a kid. And so be able to spend that time with him over two or three years and learn about his life and his art was a real privilege, despite the conditions he was living in. He, he was a joyful person. He enjoyed life as much as he could. And he told me so many great stories. So it's a real privilege. And like I said, I, I'm hoping to carry his story on and make more people realize what a great artist he was. I also haven't spent a lot of time talking about High Eisman, who was the other artist covered uh, within this piece, who was also a tremendous artist. I was not familiar with his work before doing this, but he's truly one of the great artists out there. He is one of the most respected artists. He can do a wide range of styles and was working until last year. He retired at the age of 95. He had a steadier hand than I did. And he is somebody to aspire to be, and is just an amazing gentleman. And thankfully, he's still with us. He was able to see the film and is very happy with it. He's also getting a lot of attention in the press now because of the film, and I think he's enjoying that. So it's been a joy to see that as well. Well, James, I am so grateful that you've taken time out of your schedule to come and talk to us about this important project. You know, any labor of love that helps to set the record straight and and try to find some justice for folks who were treated unjustly. I mean, it's, it's noble work, honorable work. I'm so grateful that you took the initiative to do this. And I think the our future historians will be very grateful for this work of, of art that you have given the world. You know, thank you for following your creative muse, you know, to tell these important stories because they need to be told. And to your point earlier, right, like documentaries are labors of love. They don't make money, (laughs) but these stories have to be told. They will be lost otherwise. Well, well, thank you for the compliments. Also, thank you for having me. And also, thank you for the work you're doing there at Not Real Art. I'm really impressed by what y'all have done there, and you should be very proud of it. Oh, thank you very much. Why? Our passion is helping artists tell their stories and promote their work. You know, artists are not a monolithic community. I've worked with them for 30 years. But the one thing I've noticed most artists will agree on and want is help telling their stories and promoting their work and amplification, right? And so to the extent that we can create a platform to help amplify and celebrate and elevate, you know, we get up every day loving what we do. And we like to say we talk to the world's most creative people here on Not Real Art. And my friend, you are absolutely one of the world's most creative people. I'm so grateful, James, for you coming on and telling the stories, making your own art. You've sold the business. Now you can go be an artist yourself. And that's got to feel very liberating. It does. And thank you very much. You're so welcome. Now, before we go, James, let's make sure our listeners know exactly where to watch Wham Blam. I watched it on Amazon. Uh, I think I paid two fifty or something to stream it. Where else can they watch your documentary? It's available across a wide range of platforms. As you said, it's available at Amazon Prime. It's also available on Apple TV, available on Vudu. I think it's on Google Play and also YouTube pay-per-view. Also, the DVD was released just about two weeks ago by Ken O'Lorder. And so that's where you can find it. Is it going to be released in comic book form? Because I feel as though that might be appropriate. <laughs> uh, that, you know what? I had not thought about that. Maybe I should call Dave Gibbons or somebody like that to see if they want to take that on. Uh, 
no plans for it so far. Right, right. That would that well, that would be very meta on some level, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> James Hussey, thank you, man, for coming through. It's a joy to to spend some time with you and talk to you. I hope we can call you our our friend here at Novel Arts, and would love for you to come back and talk to us again about your next project. Absolutely, I would I would love to do that. I've really enjoyed it. Sounds great, my friend. Thanks again. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.